kia mātāra e tū i runga i te whakapono, whakatangata kia kaha. Put ye like men, be strong. E te iwi nau piki mai, nau kake mai ki tine hōtaka a Te Ahikāko, Justin Murray, ahau. And I'm Maraia Rakuraku. Welcome to Te Ahikā, Radio New Zealand's weekly look at everything Māori. Maraia, if you had to put together a dream team of, say, silver ferns, who would you pick? Well, netball ain't really my thing, eh? But if it was something like a dream rugby league team... I'd have the little general, Stacey Jones, Tawera Nico, Ruben Wiki, Ruben Wiki, uh, the Edel brothers, Tony and Kevin, Mark Graham, he'd be the captain. Yeah, he would be. Stephen Kearney, Nigel Vagana, Isaac Luke, Richie Bennett, Ali Loatiti, Jared McCracken, Sean Hoppy, and Benji Marshall. Oh, and Nanu Vatuvei. So that's 13A, and for most of those players, they're still involved in the game somehow. Unlike the dream first 15 team, Māori boarding school Teote College has come up with. Now making the selection for this team didn't even require trials. You don't even need to play rugby. Huh? Māori television presenter and Teote old boy Julian Wilcox explains. This uh, very special occasion tonight, ladies and gentlemen, as we have already mentioned, we've remembered some of those who entrenched the mana of Teote College. The role models of so many generations, the pioneers of Teotihuacan success. Tonight, we name 15 legends of Teotihuacan, 15 old boys of Teotihuacan, 15 leaders of Māoridom. We were at the dinner earlier this week where old boys from Teotihuacan College were selected for the inaugural Teotihuacan Leaders First 15. And we're talking shakers and movers here, so stay tuned. We'll be profiling some of those men this week as well as over the next few weeks. Taranaki artist Nahina Hōhaya is the first artist to exhibit in the newly developed space at the Wellington City Gallery dedicated to Māori and Pacific art. And Nasi Maniopoto, Ruben Friend, is its curator. I met with him a few weeks ago and we toured Hōhaya's self-titled exhibition, Nahina Hōhaya, Roi Matatoroa and Pao Pao Kitsua Orangi. Koira te kaupapa e whaiake nei. That's what's coming up this week on Te Ahikā. In 1972, the first short story collection in English, Ponamu Ponamu, was published by a Māori writer. Hard to believe, eh, Justine? That was a little over 30 years ago. It sure was. Written by Wati'ihi Maira, Ponamu Ponamu launched a career that, well, hasn't really stopped. And includes novels, a play, Woman Far Walking, a ballet, an opera, short film film, and then there's all the teaching and anthology editing. And let's not forget his time at Foreign Affairs. He's really packed it in, eh, Justine? And all that work was celebrated when he received Te Tohu Tiki Tiki a Te Wakatoi. The Premier Award from Te Wakatoi, the Māori Board of Creative New Zealand, made to an individual who has contributed big time to the artistic scene in Aotearoa. Often referring to his career as a magnificent accident. Here's Wati Maira in a recording of Libby Hakaraya, former Radio New Zealand broadcaster, describing one of the incidents making up his career editing a short story anthology that plotted Māori writing using the short story format. Where's Wari? That's the question that uh, Witi Ihamaira is asking the reader through a, 
a history of Māori through the short story, a very catching cover to this book, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But uh, where's Wadi's hit the bookshelves? Um, and I've asked Witty to come in and talk to me about exactly what he means by where's Wadi. Kia ora, Witty. Thank you for joining me in the studio. I, I am intrigued by Where's Wadi because, of course, it immediately makes me think of Where's Wally. Was that the intention? <laughs> yes, well, I, um, you know, have these uh, neighbours who, whose daughters, uh, one daughter when she was very young showed me the book, Where's Wally? And we had a wonderful time, and it suddenly struck me that um, throughout the whole history of New Zealand literature, and in particular the short story, it's also been a matter of finding out, well, you know, um, is the Māori person or the Māori situations that our New Zealand writers written about, yes. are they actually Māori? And are these characters that they have <laughs> written about, are they also Māori? Mm. Um, because uh, when I was younger and uh, we used to slave over books called um, Plain Sailing and the anthologies like C.K. Stead's anthologies. You know, yes. I'm sure everybody re remembers those old anthologies of short stories by New Zealanders. Yes. And I often used to think, gee, these Māori people in these short stories don't even sound like mum and dad or some of the... They didn't ring know. quite true. Mm. No, it's not that they didn't ring quite true. It's just that they were seen in a different way. Right. Because um, I think the, the earlier writers, especially the colonial writers, um, they were kind of like uh, promoting a different kind of New Zealand. And in fact, for instance, the first writer in this book, Alfred Grace, well, his father was a missionary and he evangelised uh, around uh, Lake Taupo. And so you'd expect that uh, his story would therefore be the kind of story that, that's about Christianising the natives. Mm. And then the next uh, person in the book is a man by the name of Henry Lawson, who was from Australia and who uh, was at the time, and we're talking here about the 1890s, uh, teaching at a small um, Māori native school up north. And so his story is really quite a, a cynical and quite malevolent story of, of what he saw in terms of, you know, Māori as um, savages and uh, Māori as uh, people who needed to be civilised. Mm. So what I've done is I've followed the trail of all of these things through this particular book and had a lot of fun doing it. How did you decide what to put in? Because as you did your research, you would have found, as you say about Henry Lawson's story, you would have found numerable accounts of the similar nature, true? <laughs> well... The noble savage. <laughs> yes, well, it was very, very difficult to uh, bring it down to a final choice of 29 uh, writers. And we're talking here of 29, first of all, European writers, uh, because only the European people uh, were writing at that time. And uh, so we have uh, around about half of the, the book is how the Pākehā perceived Māori. And then... In 1962 or 63, we get the first Māori writer, and that is J.C. Sturm, who wrote a, a story called For All the Saints, and then other Peter Blanc, Roly Habib, Patricia Grace, um, coming up to the present generation. And so I think the readers are going to have a lot of fun seeing how Europeans perceived uh, Māori then, and also to see how Māori perceived uh, Māori themselves. The choice, as I say, was difficult because there are some really awful stories. Oh, yes. Some yes. really awful ones. And I wanted to make this um, almost like a, a, a taster of what was there. 
And I think I've done uh, as best a job that I could to try to make it balanced, to try to make it fun. And I think that people will see the fun nature of it, in fact, begins when you actually see the, um, the cover. I think the cover's wonderful. I see a couple of people I recognise straight away. I think in the middle, it's a montage of, of faces. Very bright cover too, Witty, but I think I see uh, Mika in the middle there, correct? That's right. We wanted to do it almost like a take-off of Hollywood Squares, you yes. know, where um, uh, there's about three or four or five or six panellists. And uh, we wanted to have one blonde Māori, one a gay Māori, one very old um, queer uh, Māori, uh, uh, one staunch young Māori, you know, just to, just to show that, in fact, there are lots of Māori that we're talking about mm. and lots of Māori, uh, you know, who have been written about. Mm. I think it's, uh, I think we, we're living in quite exciting times, uh, Witty, uh, in, in terms of people are now starting to, uh, and I mean, when I say people, I mean the general audience, whether it's radio or television, film, us, we all want to see the diversity of Māori. It's coming out, isn't it? Well, you know, I think one of the most wonderful things about doing a collection like this is, in fact, to know uh, what our history is. And, uh, for instance, I was very greatly charmed by a short story um, uh, by Catherine Mansfield. It's called How Pearl Button Was Kidnapped. And on the surface, when it was published in England, people actually thought, they didn't realise it was a story about Māori and uh, Pākehā. Mm. A little girl gets kidnapped by Māori and taken down to the beach. And overseas, they thought, oh, this is a story about gypsies. You know? <laughs> the gypsies <laughs> in the forest. Kidnapped yes. this little girl. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there's another story by um, Fiona Kidman which is a wonderful, wonderful story about an old lady who is uh, in hospital and um, reminiscing about the time when she saw Rua and his wives and the story about how many wives he had and how they came uh, to um, stay overnight at her father's farm invests this whole um, story with a sense of hope and optimism about where we're going as people. Mm, true. Contentious witty at all yes. I know you like to I know you like to ruffle a few feathers on occasion <laughs> well I wouldn't be me if I if, if, mm. if I didn't have a sense of politics and mm -hmm. passion mm -hmm. and uh, I my one of my daughters uh, Jessica I sent her a copy and she she rang up afterwards and she said oh daddy some of these stories this this guy she said but you know there are also some that make you go hey isn't that wonderful um, I think one of the, the, the best and longest stories in the collection is the, the one by Morris Shadbolt, and it's called The People Before. And, and in it, it's extremely moving. It's taken from the perspective of a, uh, a Pākehā farmer on his land, and all of a sudden he sees coming down the river a boat, and on the boat are all of these old Māori people, mm. and they are wanting to take the old man who's still alive uh, you know, up into the hills so that he can see where the old, old uh, uh, marae used to be. Yes. And it's just a most wonderful story about what it must have been like in the um, early 1950s um, and 60s where we were actually not quite where we are now, you know, where we were at that kind of turning point when people 
we're beginning to understand, well, Māori people do want to have a say. Mm. They do want to have some sense of, of sovereignty. Yes. So we're going through all of that. We, 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 we end, in fact, with uh, Phil Kawana and with Briar Grace Smith. And I think that uh, they're going to blow your socks off when you read the collection. Sure. Mai te whānau a kai, te aitanga mahaki, rongo whakāta ngai tā manuhiri, ngāti porou tūhoe te whakatōhea. Whānau mai aia i te tau kotahi mano e i warau whā te kaumāwha. I tipu aia ki roto tūranganui, e ai ki ngā kōrero nei, E hara ia i te tauira mātau i a ia e kurana, he oi i eke a ia ki tāna tohu paitahi. I te tau kotahimano e iwarau whitu te kaumātoru, no nata waimaria i kite e ia e te primia o tauawā a Norman Kirk. Nā runga i tērā kitenga o tēne o ngā primia i tono hia ia kia riro ia ia te tahimahi mo te tari e kia nei ko te Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Mai runga i tērā i whaituranga ia ki wiwi wāwā huri nō te ao. Me ki rā i roto i āna kōtiti haere, ka hua mai ko paunamu paunamu, ka hua mai ko tangi, no reira e hikamā i tēnei tau, ka whakawhiwhia te tohu tike tike a te wakatoi, ki a witi ihimaira. I won't. <laughs> I hear Tirangi, I hear Timana, Kurangi Nui Kerunga, Kopapatu Nuku Keraro, Ingarangatirima, Quima, Kuroma, Panoma, Poama, Pakekema, Tamarikima, Tina Koto, Tina Koto, Tina Tato Katoa. My name is Mr. Witi Ihimaira. But I am really the son of Teha Uruhia Ihimaira Smiler Jr. of Tifanu Akai and Julia Keelan of Ngati Pro of Te Panarua Topare. Through my father, Tom, as we know him, he's now 95. And my mother, of course, is a very young 87. She said that she married Dad uh, because uh, it was better to be an old man's darling than a young man's slave. <laughs> My father's uh, father was Pera Punahamua Ihimaira Te Hanene, and that's how we go to uh, uh, Te Whanua Apanui. And through um, his, uh, his uh, grandmother, Hine Te Ariki, and her uh, first husband, Ihimaira uh, Tehanene, that's how we go to Tuhoi. 
I'm honored to, to be belong to all of those people. But there's another story, and that is that when Dad was very, very young, and Tupuya was going around looking for young boys to uh, marry into Waikato, and to become part of you know, her traveling team, she came up to Dad and she said to him, oh, Tom, I'd love you to come and, and, and be in Waikato. So if he, had, if he hadn't met Mum, he would have gone there and I would have come from Waikato too. <laughs> like all of you, I was born at a time, well, this is what I thought until tonight, when giants walked the earth. And now I find that those giants are still here. <laughs> they are wonderful giants, they're queer, they're kloa, they are absolutely magnificent giants. Although I fear my judgment before God, I actually fear my interrogation before my komatua and my queer. <laughs> they are always before me waiting in line and it is with them that I have my implicit contract. And if I fail the test, well, as Anne Landers has famously said, it's always darkest before everything becomes totally black. <laughs> I am really honored to join the illustrious list of past awardees. And Iri Tana is here. She was one of the awardees for this award. And it's in fact, um, tonight I want to pay tribute to all of those Komatua and queer who were here tonight. Mere, what an honor to hear you speak. What an honor. And you reminded me, Mere, of how important it is to have Komatua and queer to wait for us when we come back from school. Because I was five years old, my first day at school, I came back to Waituhi and my uh, grandmother uh, was waiting for me, Mini Tupara. And Nanny Mini said to me, so boy, what did you learn at school today? And I said, I learned Jack and Jill. <laughs> so you all know Jack and Jill, don't you? So after me, one, two. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. Well, the first question my nanny Minnie asked me was, who are Jack and Jill? Why can't they be Mere and Hone? And why is Jack wearing a crown? It's his own fault if he breaks it when he falls down. And what are they doing going up a hill to fetch water? What a stupid place to put a well. So she taught me from the very beginning to interrogate the story that you hear. And that I was going to be living in a world that, lived, that, that was upside down, that believed that you had wells at the tops of hills. So the next day when I went to school and I came back from school and she said to me, so witty, what have you learned today? Of course I didn't want to answer her. But I said, little Miss Muffet. One, two. Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, eating her curds and white. Along came a spider and sat down beside her and fighting Miss Muffet away. Well, of course, her first question was, well, who's Miss Muffet? Why can't it be Miss Mahapihi? And what's a tuffet? Anybody out there know what a tuffet is? Put up your hand. <laughs> And what a curds and whey. 
<laughs> but her killer, her killer question was, and why is she so scared of a spider? Why is she so scared of a spider? Why doesn't she go get it in her hands and put it out of harm's way and say cure her to it? So I also learned when I was five years old that I was going into a world where nothing made sense. <laughs> where people built wells at the tops of the hills and they killed spiders. The consequence of all of that was that when I actually did start going to school and I, I actually wrote my first short story when I was 12, this is what I wrote. Once upon a time, there was a princess locked in a tall tower guarded by a fierce dragon. And every day, she would run to the uh, window and see a handsome prince ride by on a white horse and she would go, help me, help me, save me from this dragon. But because she was so ugly, the princess on their white horses would keep on riding further and further down the road to rescue a more beautiful Pākehā princess. <laughs> day after day this would happen, the Māori princess would wait at the window for a handsome prince. And on his white horse he would keep on riding down the road to get that beautiful princess until she got so sick and tired of waiting she went out and married the dragon. So I learned very early to write stories that embraced danger <laughs> and, and stories uh, which um, would position uh, Māori uh, in the, in, in the centre of the story rather than at the margins. All of these things have made me the person that I am, but I actually wouldn't be the person that I am if it wasn't for my komatua, my kuia, and all of those wonderful, wonderful people. And Chris, I think it's just fantastic that you're here, and I want to thank Te Wakatoi very, very much for the honour um, of this award. Of course, you know, I always, my daughters always used to say that I was almost famous. Well, actually, it's untrue. Because the last time I came through customs and somebody, you know, the customs officer was there to say, uh, you know, to put me through, he just said, oh, well, welcome home, Sir Howard. <laughs> well, well, I've had far worse, you know, once a... A young woman ran after me and said, you're my favourite author, can I have your autograph? I've always loved Once We're Warriors. <laughs> so I'm really deeply honoured to be here. <laughs> it should really be Sir Howard or should be Ella Duff. But, you know, actually, while I've been here, I've been working, I've been writing this poem, because I thought I'd just um, give you my latest Once Upon a Time story. So I'd like to read this for you. If New Zealand had been Aotearoa, just imagine what might have been, what we could have seen, and what it might mean. The treaty would have been honoured in 1840, we would have retained our tino rangatiratanga, and Pākehā would have been granted kawanatanga, and there would have been no throwing of black, wet T-shirts at Her Majesty. <laughs> Being kaitiaki, we would have heard huia still singing today. 
Our seas would flourish with the sounds of plunging whales, and Matariki would usher in our Aotearoa New Year. And the flags would click against each other more strongly with their words of protection. He ahate mea nui o te ao, he tangata, he tangata, he tangata. And this is not to say we wouldn't have had wars and through the years that there wouldn't have been pain and tears and maybe would have, we would have lost again and they'd have won again. But just imagine if New Zealand had been Aotearoa, what might have been, what we might have seen and what it might mean. The representative we send to the United Nations would be one of us. The New Zealand representative to Washington DC, London, Paris, would be one of your mokopuna. The Prime Minister might have had a ta moko. It might have even been an arikiwahine. The official language would be Māori. And we wouldn't have to ask for two seats on Auckland Supercity. Being kaitiaki, we would have heard the huia still singing today, filling the air with its coruscating and incandescent brilliance. Our seas would flourish with the sound of plunging whales, and the tales all children would have learned would have been about whale riders, mountain movers, and rivers filled with mythical tanifa. And this is not to say we wouldn't have had pain and tears throughout the years, but we would also have had Komatua and Kuia whispering in our ears, Faya te iti kahurangi, me te tuohu koe, te tuohu ki te maumateite. So just imagine what might have been, what we might have seen, and it might mean. All that ihi mana and wehi harnessed to the world's good, the Pacific, a confederation of island nations guided by Kopapa, and young Māori, Aumukapuna, on Star Walker, heading into the universe to claim their rightful heritage, the world that Tane made for us and for them. Tui tui tuia, tuia runga tuia raro tuia roto tuia waho, tuia tehere tangata kaarongo te ao kaarongo te po, tuia te kawai tangata i heke mai, Te Hawaiki Nui, Hawaiki Roa, Hawaiki Pāma Māo, ki te Honunui Wairua, ki te Paiao, ki te Ao Mārama. He mātareki at our New Year, and whales plunging in our Te Moana Nui Akiwa, and the stars singing in our own heavens, and that star walker carrying our moko out into the galaxies. Tihimaira no te whānau a kai ta aitanga mahaki rongu whakāta naita manuhiri Ngāti Parau Tūhoi Whakatōhia, recipient of te tohu tikitike a te wakatoi. He joins the honour roll that includes Dame Eritana Tāwhiwhirangi, tohunga whakairo Pakariki Harrison and Weaver Diggeris Te Kanua. Hefti Company, ne maraia. Hefti Company, all right Justine. In Labour Weekend, the who's who of the weaving fraternity will be at Amarai in Wairua. And while there, 
while they're weaving, they'll also be remembering one of their greatest members, Digeris Tikanoa, who passed away earlier this year. Mariah spoke with Tina Wirihanga about the queer's legacy. For me, Digeris has uh, left a contribution to the evolution of traditional clothing in terms of her vision to see that kākahu could be made by more than one person and had the ability to control their tension through a template that she had designed. So consequently, she had four women working on panels and when she pieced them all together, all their ara, their rows, all met. So for the evolution of kākahu making and the significance of te ahotapu is still present in the structure of making cloaks. And for me, that is a uh, major contribution that she's left behind that I, I have taken to heart and, and something that, that needs to continue because it means that kākahu are going to be readily made and work as a, in collaboration with other people. And so that's one of the many milestones that she's left for me is contributing to the evolution of traditional clothing. So you're also talking about the speed that it takes to complete something as well, right? Yes, it is about the the pace in which it is uh, completed, but it's also at a pace that is determined by the individuals, and it's a pace where the enjoyment is not being denied. And it's about the pace that um, the weavers are working within the, the com- a community environment. So all of those elements aren't lost, but then the completion of the cloak becomes... Yeah, more collaborative. More collaborative, yeah. And that's so it doesn't, it doesn't focus on individual completement? But no, more. I don't think it's... No, it, and that's what she's left behind. And where there are the individual completions of a kākahu, and that, yes, that's really great, but it's also what she's actually added another layer to how kākahu can be made. So it, is this almost like creating another tikana? Well, it is, because it, uh, one, one of the things also, it actually makes reference to the significance of te ahotapu in cloak making and the significance of the, the te ahotapu is when you sit down, do your first row and you've got to sit there until you finished it. So te ahotapu is, is a row, is the first row you make that anchors everything that follows on from it when you're creating, uh, if it's a garment or whether, when you're creating something, isn't it? It, um, it follows... It follows on from the anchoring. You, you anchor all the fibres together, and Te Ahotapu makes reference to the, tarn, the first tarnical row of a kākahu because it's in the first tarnical row that you set your kaupapa, your, um, your design of how the tarnical pattern is going to come out, but it also sets the kaupapa to how the whole cloak is going to come out, which is great. And weavers will be able to understand that, you know, so... To me, I think, oh, that's so cool. And, and the thing is, she, she was a queer doing it, you know, and, and she was so innovative. And she liked challenging boundaries. And she would give permission to people like myself and many others, if you think 
about an idea, do it and don't put any restrictions on why you can't do it rather than remove that away and say have a go and then you'll know whether it works or not. You know, so that's a really good co-papa. Now coming up in October there's the National Weavers Week. Mm-hmm. Yes there is and it's in Wairau which is really great and um, so in at Wairau we'll be um, uh, acknowledging Diggeress and also Eddie Maxwell, two weavers have passed and also uh, it's just a really good place to go to Wairau and I was, when I flew down this morning from Rotorua and picked up a magazine and it's about the um, changes of, of how people view Wairau and to be able to contribute by having our National Weavers Hui in Wairau in October, it's just really great. And the people there have pretty much got on with planning it and, and they've done it all themselves. We, we're, we're the ones that are, are the vehicle to... Um, to signal that that's the venue, but really it's the people of Wairau that, that take the accolades for the planning, you know, and it's, it's not about us, you know, so, which is great. And also the, the National Hui would um, then enter into January of next year when we've got the Indigenous Weavers Symposium from the 8th to the 13th in Rotorua, going to be a good uh, showcase of other Indigenous uh, weavers and at this point in time, I'm able to to confirm that we've got a weaver from Alaska who works with um, salmon skin, and we've got a weaver from Japan who will be looking at some traditional dyeing techniques. So a lot of collaboration is going to happen, so it's a really exciting time for the weavers. Tina Wirihana at our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. There's information about the upcoming Hui at Labour Weekend which is all working up to the Weaver's Symposium that's taking place next year in Rotorua at Te Wananga o Aotearoa. And also at the website, there's a photo gallery and you can even subscribe to our weekly newsletter. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Maraia Rakraku and this is Te Ahika. What do you associate woolen blankets with, Maraia? Scratchy material, Justine. <laughs> well, thanks to Nahina Hohaya, they're having a bit of a revitalisation as a nod to our colonial past. Hohaya has made poi, and I'm talking hundreds of poi from woolen blankets, which she's then had embroidered with images or words that relate to her people of Parihaka. Now add into the mix Ruben Friend, who curated an exhibition called Plastic Māori. And you have the creation of a dynamic collaboration, as evidenced at the Wellington City Gallery, where I was lucky enough to get a look at the exhibition outside of ours. The space we're standing in at the moment is the Roderick and Gillian Dean Gallery. For Māori and Pacific Arts. Now how big is this space? Uh, the space is about 12 metres by just over 5 metres, so it's a, it's a decent size. My job is basically I am the curator of Māori and Pacific Arts here at City Gallery. Uh, it's not exclusively for this space. My, my role goes throughout the whole institution, so whenever we have Māori Pacific art exhibitions, uh, my job is to, to work on those exhibitions. This space here that we're in, the, the Gillian Roderick Dean Gallery, is specifically for um, emerging or um, uh, exhibitions where we might not necessarily be able to put them in one of the main spaces. 
And that's, is that going to be targeted specifically at Māori and Pacific artists? Yep, yep that's right. Okay. So it's not to say though that um, if you're not Māori Pacific artist, uh, a person, you know, ethnic, ethnically, that you can't be in the space. The idea of us for the space to talk about kaupapa that relate to Māori and Pacific communities, as opposed to you know being a space specifically for people of uh, Māori and Pacific heritage. Now, is that a relatively new concept? Um, in terms of museums, it's not, but for an art gallery, um, it's quite progressive. Um, there aren't many spaces like this in the country. Uh, in fact, I'm not aware of any, actually, that are public institutions that are art gallery, not exclusively art galleries, that have a space for Māori and Pacific um, set aside. Um, and so for City Gallery, it's, um, it's a really big... I think for institutions, you know, nationally, it's a really... Um, important um, step, but for City Gallery especially it's a, it's a really good way for us to engage with our Māori and Pacific communities who might not necessarily be coming into the gallery um, and maybe looking at ways that we can engage with our communities. So this space is actually tucked away though in the gallery. I mean often Ruben, isn't it just hard getting Māori in the door? Yeah, yeah um, there's a really famous artwork by Colin McCann that's said uh, scared a boy, <laughs> and it was about two young Māori boys who came into the Auckland Art Gallery. Colin McCann seen them at the door, they kind of looked around and um, then stepped back out of the door and went away because mm. you know, it, it intimidated them. It's not a place that um, Māori are necessarily comfortable, um, so I do think for a lot of our Māori Pacific communities that it isn't, not yet anyway, um, uh, a comfortable place for all of us to go. But I think with, um, with an emerging middle class that we do have now and more educated Māori Pacific communities, we are having people who um, are more fluent you know, in art language and art speaking, interested in, in um, the offerings from our Māori Pacific artists. And I think the other thing too is that I think maybe in the last 40, maybe could even stretch it to 80 years, we've had, uh, especially for Māori artists, uh, a, a renaissance of sorts where we've had um, Māori artists who have gone out and basically set up the foundation for, for contemporary Māori and Pacific arts today. And who would be those, those artists? Um, just off the top of my head, you know, you'd probably pick off people, I mean, for Pacific arts, you know, Fatu Fe'u is probably one of our major um, artists and he started the Totai um, Contemporary Pacific Arts Trust and they support a lot of um, Pacific artists, but not only artists, you know, curators as well, and they're, so they're encouraging um, people to go out and um, so Fatu's basically used his networks, you know, and his his um, mana, you know, his reputation to help support these younger artists and so we've got a lot of good Pacific artists coming through their ranks now and so um, as a curator of Māori Pacific Arts I'm really interested in, you know, supporting them um, and then maybe for Māori artists you're probably going to look at people who um, are huge in New Zealand arts in general so, you know, you've got people like Ralph Hortere who, although he says you know, he's an artist who happens to be Māori. Mm. The mere fact that he is Māori has really um, opened a lot of doors for, for Māori art in New Zealand. Um, and then I guess you have Selwyn Mudu, um, Paramatch, you know, those are the, the sort of the big names that um, I'm just you know, coming off the top of my head now. In terms of where the space is located in the gallery, you still have to go through a big foyer, come up some stairs, uh, and you were talking earlier about uh, you know, Māori are becoming more au fait in spaces like this, more comfortable. What about Māori that, that aren't? 
Uh, I think this will be one of the challenges um, for myself as an artist, and I think this will be two parts of that question that you asked. I'll go back to the first part. Um, firstly, the gallery is off to the side. It isn't um, necessarily part of the main area, um, and that's because this is the new, newly built part, you know, so... Um, uh, but in saying that, it's still a really nice space, and this is a space for emerging artists. So the gallery right next door is the Hirsch, Michael Hirschberg Gallery, which is for um, Wellington artists, you know, and so they're these two really niche audiences. Um, our senior artists will still go in the main spaces, so John Pulley, and um, so he's going to be in the main spaces, you know, because he is a senior artist. He's basically going to take up the whole top floor, so uh, our senior artists will still be put in the main spaces. And so I guess this is um, a space for people who... Um, aren't um, necessarily able to fill up, you know, have enough works or works of a significant, um, uh, I don't know how you say it, um, size, you know, to fill up the main mm. spaces. Now, Ruben, would a space like this be possible without the patronage of generous philanthropists? Um, yeah, I mean, we're very lucky to have um, Gillian Roderick-Dean who have um, endowed the money, that the funds to... Um, help build this space. Um, so you've got the Michael Pushfell Gallery as well. And um, Basically every art gallery or museum in the country always has you know, their um, benefactors who help um, make the institution what it is. Um, I think there was, a, there was a time when you know, the definition of a museum was this um, uh, free place for you know, education and um, there was a time you know, when um, it was possible to do those things, but these days, you know, especially with um, just the rising costs of things, it's it's becoming a bigger um, uh, burden, I guess, on the ratepayers, you know, to, to continually be funding these things. So without um, the patronage of, of um, people like um, Roderick and Gillian Dean, you know, I don't think these kinds of things would be possible. Now, the title, Māori and Pacific Art Curator, you know, that's that encompasses... You know, a lot in terms of cultural. You know, culturally. Do you think that there will be a time where galleries and museums have, instead of putting the two together, have Māori curator? Yeah, um, Te Papa actually already does have that. Auckland uh, Museum does have that. It's just a matter of um, institutions, and once again, it comes back to funding. You know, and how much we can afford. Um, to, to do those kinds of things. So um, you have really awesome Pacific um, curators at Papa, and you also have um, awesome Māori curators. And Papa also has Indigenous curators too that you know, go uh, you know, around the world and, and sort of look at um, Indigenous issues worldwide. Um, so for City Gallery, we're actually a really small institution, you know, despite looking at how, uh, how big the size of the projects we do, we're actually a really small small staff here, so the things we do is quite amazing. Um, in terms of being a Māori Pacific curator, yeah, there is a really big breadth. Um, my specialty is um, Māori arts, um, so I was raised in South Auckland, um, you know, so I have a good awareness of Māori and Pacific um, community customs. Um, and But in terms of... Um, Exhibiting artists, it doesn't really matter what culture you're from. If your artworks have quality and if they have um, significance in terms of you know, their concept and the things they're saying, 
then um, you will stand out and, and we'll, it's just a matter of finding those artists that have that, that something special and giving them a place to tell these stories. So as a curator, it's not necessarily my job to, to, to go and find them and say, this is what they're saying, this is their, you know, this is the Pacific community story. You know, that's not my job. My job is to find the artists and to, to let them or to enable them to, to tell the stories. And do they eventually end up rising to the surface, Ruben? Well, we already have um, a lot of who are artists who I'd say were in that area of emerging and have been there for so long that I'd basically say that they're our um, senior artists now. So you have people like um, Annie O'Neill, um, even Lonnie Hutchinson, those kinds of people who um, were, I guess, emerging artists, you know, but they've been there for so long that I'd, I'd even put them at the point where they're, they're quite established in, in their careers. Um, so yes, definitely, uh, we, do, we do have a lot of Māori Pacific artists coming, coming to the top. Now in terms of Māori curators, is the community quite small or is it quite, I mean, is it large, is it growing? Um, in terms of curators in general, it's um, very competitive for, for these kinds of jobs and people who are in these positions um, are you know, really highly educated, really highly motivated. Um, and so when we look at Māori or Pacific curators, it's an even smaller um, uh, group of jobs out there. You know? And you've got to know your stuff, you know, because there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. Mm. And, you know, you're dealing with politics, with identity, mm. you know. Uh, you created an exhibition out at the Dallas called Plastic Māori, and that, that looked at aspects of authenticity. And uh, just the title alone, Plastic Māori, you know, it gets some backs up. But when I did some research on the work that had been included in that exhibition, you were looking at artists that were dealing, that were using synthetic materials? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, as curators, we, there are times where we are able to pull a show together out of an idea we've had. Um, I mean, those are really fun for us as curators to be able to... Um, to be able to, to pull those shows uh, together. Would you like that audio on there, buddy? Uh, would you like us to turn the projection on it? Yep. It's quite noisy in Ahina's work. Yep. Um, Let's have a look. It's got, um, this work here that we're looking at has about, oh, it's over 200 poi arranged in a circular pattern on a wall. And then there is a projection that goes onto it that makes the poi look like they're lighting up. Wow. Oh my God, I'm getting shivers up my spine. Yeah, and so there's waiata that goes with it and beating. So this, this work here looks at the Parehaka tradition of poi and how they use that uh, alongside the drum to record genealogies. So, yeah, so this work, it was just a matter of me um, finding um, an artist, you know, and letting them do their thing in the space. Uh, the installation works about six minutes long, um, and so I mean it's really hard to explain on radio what the work looks like. You really have to come in to see it. Um, it's quite amazing. But at, at the end, there's just a shot of white um, light for about half a minute, so that people can actually go up and see the poi on the wall and see the symbols. Because she's been working on this work for a long time, hasn't she? Yep, this particular work here is uh, for her Masters in Māori Visual Arts through uh, Massey University in Palmerston North. So um, she's currently studying right now.
Ngahina Hohaya's um, exhibition. Um, this work here that you can hear in the background is called Pau Pau Kitua Orangi, which um, basically means um, to reverberate beyond the heavens or um, a, a beating sound to the skies. It's really romantic. <laughs> it is. It sounds, it sounds a lot nicer in Māori. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and so what we're looking at are poi that have been placed in kind of like a circle. Yeah, in concentric circles with the head of the poi in the centre. And how many poi are there? Um, this one here, I know there's over 200 poi on this one here. It escapes my memory at the moment. And so there's a lighting display going on that, that kind of lights up the poi and in the middle of the of the poi are um, images of Parihaka being shown. Yeah, so um, Ngahina was um, raised up at uh, in Parihaka, up in Taranaki, or yes, up from Wellington. And the images you see in the middle are um, images of um, Tupuna from Parihaka. Um, so you see um, images of Ngahina's um, Tupuna and um, I think for people from Atiawa, they were, because we have a uh, mana whenua as Atiawa in Wellington, there's a lot of people who fuck up to a lot of the people on these images. Um, and so these would have been the late late 1800s. These images and it shows them doing poi and um, tayaha and um, those kinds of customary dances, you know, at that time. Ngahina talks a lot about the poi though not being something for entertainment. It's more. Um, something that was used to help record genealogy and ancestral teachings. And then on the wall alongside it are poi that to me look like they're almost like soldiers. Yeah, yeah, interesting you make that um, association. So there's 392, I know the exact Ooh. number on that one, uh, poi. And along the middle is a whakatauki uh, proverb from um, Tuhu, I think it's Tuhu Kākahi. Um, that sort of formed the, the basis of the work and it was a speech that he gave talking about um, freedom and, you know, and passive resistance and so basically the whole work uh, is talking about the Parehaka um, philosophy of um, passive resistance. So Ngahina, Ngahina talks about how her tupuna were able to blend ancient Māori ideologies with um, religious teachings and, and she so she calls it um, liberation theology <laughs> yeah but I mean it's really interesting talking to her I mean um, a lot of people think that these works are uh, religious or you know tied up in religion but um, if we actually look back at Parihaka there you know there isn't a church there and there never was a church there um, and so it could be that to who um, Kākahi and Te Whiti Orungamai, who were the, you know, the spiritual and political leaders of Parihaka in, in the late 1800s. It could be that they used the, the Bible and those biblical references because that's what the people understood at the time and that's the way their message could get through and you know, to, to frame it in a way that people would understand. Um, but it's not necessarily saying that these people were, were overtly religious. Now the poi are constructed out of woolen, woolen blankets and that has a message, a subverted text in it too, doesn't it, Ruben? Yes, yeah, so Ngahina talks a lot about um, the wool, uh, you know, the industry, you know, so New Zealand economy being built on wool and meat and 
um, especially in relation to Parehaka, you know, there's a lot of that industry was built on land that you know was confiscated, um, whether it was legal or illegal, um, from Māori communities. And so she uses the woolen blanket as a, as a symbol of um, the historical balance of wealth. Um, yeah. And then on the woolen blanket are embroidered images. Uh, just randomly, there's, there's images of, of the Rokura, which is synonymous with Tarnaki. Put a put a fitu, I think, over there. Yes, yeah, so you got some really interesting images on there. There's one of uh, a dog taking a mummy, and so there was uh, quite a famous symbol where um, one of the cannons that they they were planning to use at Parehaka, um, they loaded up with gunpowder, but it just wouldn't go because you know the dog had mummy on it, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, so there's some really interesting, and you see the Ratana star on there. Um, there's an image of a. Um, of a colonial, one of the colonial troops with a with his gun chasing a um, what looks like a Māori person. Um, then you've got images that are looking at the idea of liberation of freedom. So you know you've got the keys that are you know the idea of unlocking or or enslaving people. Um, the trumpet. You've got a Taranaki tickle tickle there, which um, if if anyone's aware of um, Māori Fakairo, the Taranaki Tikotiko has a point at the top of his head which um, symbolises um, Taranaki, you know, the, the actual manga. Um, so there's a lot of, lot, of, lot of symbols in there. Ruben Friend, curator of Māori and Pacific Art at City Gallery, Wellington. And for photos of the poi, go to our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash tiahika, where you can also hear a significantly longer version of that interview. What do you think of when you see Māori boys dressed in red and black uniforms, Mariah? Well, for any schoolgirl travelling on the train from Gisborne to Wellington pre-Cyclone Bowler, it was TA, as in Te boys, though for me, Justine, it was more the HP boys. Hatopolda, that is to get my teenage heart beating. Well, those TA boys created a Te Aute Legends First 15, celebrating the leaders the school has produced, and we're talking big guns here. Following in the steps of... Tā Te Rangihirua, Sir Peter Buck. Māui Pōmare, James Carroll, the founders of the Young Māori Party. But let's put it into more of the modern age, and how do you go from literally hundreds of old boys to 15? Well, I'd hate to be selecting that. It's the first time, though, and to the selection panel's credit, they came up with the 15, who pretty much cover off a wide range of professional excellence. In weeks to come, we'll be profiling some of the 15, starting with Sandy Adset, whose memories of Te Aute remain, and anyone who went to boarding school will tell you this, tied to his stomach. Ko te rangatira tuatahi, he tohunga toi, he tohunga tā. He tohunga hangahanga, he tohunga whakāko. A nāna te kōrero, nā te au te tonu aia i whakaihihi. Kia aruatuia i ngā tikanga toi onehe, hei kaupapa whakamahi mā narawa 
Born in Wairua, brought up in Ngāti Pahuera, otherwise known as Raupunga, painter, artist, weaver, costume and stage designer Sandy Atset viewed his time at Te Aute as really kick-starting his lifelong commitment to art. He will always go down in Te Aute College history. He is the only TA boy to have said, one time I actually felt full after one meal. From Ngāti Pahauwera and Ngāti Kahununu, Sandy Adset. What are your views on Toyiho? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, we believe that it's taken, you know, if, if it is going to be taken away from us, that... Because that's they supported all, isn't it, Sandy? Oh, absolutely. Mm. And it's, you know, we thought, what about all the ones that were there uh, supporting that take and being prepared to, you know, they... They allowed the Toiho mark to be part of their image to others. And so, you know, it was it was one of yeah, that's all. Uh, yeah. I I believe I, I'd like to know the real you know the reason for why it's being taken away. They say it's too expensive, it's this and the next thing. But I don't know whether it is you think there's political man- maneuvering. Absolutely. I think, you know, it, it is this way of, you know, we say that all the time, but putting us into a convenient box that they they all have a say as to what we do. You know, whereas we had Māori for, you know, uh, by Māori for Māori, that was such a strength for us because we say we're, you know, uh, directing our own, uh, well, where we want to go to, but now it's sort of, it's you know, by others... For Māori, you know, it's sort of, it, we don't have the control. And, you know, as a punter, when I used to see that mark, I'd yes. know that it's a mark of quality. Yes. Like, even if, I mean, usually you'd be familiar with, with the artist, but if I wasn't, I'd still know that there was a, there was a, like a whakapapa to that yeah. person's work yes. that I could be guaranteed would make it of a high standard. And your own mana meant that you wouldn't you know allow yourself to offer something that was less than quality and that was what the mark maintained because you know other than the established artists that sort of uh, they gave us an honorary you know toy offering the others who were coming through you know they had to reapply for it every two years because they said that way you know, we can make sure that you keep your your growth going, that you don't get complacent and say, oh, this will do because I've got a mark now, I don't need to do too much and I'll just market fodder, you know, that type of thing. Artist Sandy Adzett, who is worried about the vulnerabilities facing toi iho maraia, which is a mark that was developed over a long period of time that's placed alongside artistic work. Now, that basically sets a standard and gives credibility to artworks done by Māori, not only on a national, but on an international scale as well. And that's got Māori artists up in arms because it's looking like the current government is looking at getting rid of toi iho. Hear more about that next week. Anai te whakamārama mō te whakatauki i tēnei wiki. Ko John Tangaere, te tiamana o te puari o te aute, te kaikōrero. Kia matāra e tū i rumi i te whakapono, whakatangata kia kaha. And it's about challenging us as students, challenging um, the Te Aute whānau 
to stand and be alert, to stand dead, steadfast and true to the faith and quit you like men, be strong. Last night an art auction took place commemorating the police raids executed two years ago using the terrorism laws. A Māori language symposium was the order of the day last week as well, ending with the announcement of those organisations that really shone during Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori. We'll have that next week. Koe rāna kaupapa a te rawiki. Kua tai anō mātou ki te mutunga a te ahi kā. That's us folks for another week. He mihi nui ki ngā kai kōrero me ngā kai whakahaere tapu-tapu a te ahi kā. Hoki mai anō, hei te rawiki. Māori ora.